0: I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. That's in the Old Testament. And uh, if you just work your way from the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And uh, just to bring you up to speed uh, from those books, Genesis, I think we probably know quite a bit about that book, but if you ever wanted to... Categorize that where you could remember its contents real easy. There's four events and there's four people. The four events were creation, we know about that. Then the fall, where Adam and Eve sinned against God. And then after that, a big flood. Noah was involved with that and his family. And then after that, Babel. Those are the four events. We're going to learn about the Tower of Babel in our vacation Bible school. And then there was those four people, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and of his 12 sons, Joseph is talked about the most. And by the end of that story, you've got all the people of Israel in Egypt. When you flip over to Exodus, we learn about how God uses Moses in the face of Pharaoh, let my people go to exit from Egypt and go toward the promised land. Then you wind up at Leviticus where there's a giving of the law, including the Ten Commandments and all the things that would need to be in place to govern these people, though they wander around in the wilderness. Then there's numbers. That's the numbering of the people, like a a grand census of who's who and whose tribe who belongs to. Then there's Deuteronomy. That's the second giving of that same law. And then you get to Joshua. And if you read through your Bibles in a year, by the time you get to Joshua, you're like, finally, some narrative with some interesting content. And you learn about the conquest of the land that God had promised to his people who'd been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Well, today we begin a summer study of the book after Joshua, the book of Judges. And this covers uh, the period of time between... Those men we knew so much about, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Moses, and then Joshua, and then figures like Saul, and King David, and Solomon. This is the gap of time between the patriarchs and Moses, and then the kings, a period of judges, temporary leaders that would rule or guide and lead the children of Israel. We're going to find that this is a very dark time in Israel's history, and many of the things we're going to read over is going to surprise you. Uh, You aren't reading it right until you get to the point where you say, why is this even in the Bible? Very bizarre and mysterious stories. But we're going to take a break from John for the summer, and we won't be able to look at this as in tensely as we do John verse by verse but we'll cover most of the verses and this will be something we'll look at for the next number of weeks. We're going to need an introduction of sorts. That's what the title of this message is about. Introduction to Judges. Sounds great doesn't it? Everybody likes introductions. Well this is one of the books of the Bible that has its own introduction built into it. The first two chapters serve as a two-part lengthy introduction And we're going to make the attempt of covering all that in one sitting today. Um, We're going to feel as though we're at parts and during times we're reading a history book. So any of you that like history, then this will be good for you. Then at other times we're going to be reading and it's going to sound a lot like geography class. Lots of landmarks and different places and borders and who lives there. If you like geography, then that's good for you. If you like both of those mixed together, this is even better. But I'm going to take a shot at thinking most of you don't get up and go to church for geography and history. Uh, It took me a long time before they were even interesting in school. And by that time I'd graduated and was in real need of some remedial understanding of these things. Especially when you get to the part in life where you need to know what a survey looks like and buying land and the landmarks. That's geography. Same as the day it dawned on me that math was important. I needed to balance my checkbook. Well, we're going to need things like that when we study Scripture. History is important. It's very important. We don't understand our history. Our past will be doomed to relive it, even the bad parts. So the book of Judges needs no formal introduction, though if you're not the history type or the geography type, Just think of these first two chapters as kind of like an introductory video, not unlike if any of you've been to the battleship, the USS North Carolina in Wilmington, big, huge battleship. We've been many times. You won't want to go this time of year. It's hot down in that boat. Go in the fall or in the spring. But when you go in, you're going to go over to your right as soon as you get through the doors and buy your ticket and they put the wristband on you. And in that room loops a video constantly. And in that video they're going to tell you where that boat came from. And where and how that boat served during our world war. How that boat came to be where it is in the dock there at Wilmington. And the trouble it was to get the thing down the the river and turn it. And uh, all of that will greatly improve your experience In walking around on that boat. And understanding what it is. Same thing is true for this. This will help set the stage for what we'll learn in the coming weeks. And if you don't like any of that or the battleship. Maybe you like movies. Do you remember the beginning of Lord of the Rings? When they set in dramatic landscape. All these pieces of history that led up to where they were. Without that, the whole thing wouldn't have made much sense. And I even like one of the lines right out of the introduction because it so fits what we're about to read. Much that once was is lost. This was said in the intro to the Lord of the Rings movie. I'm not reading scripture here. (laughs) For none now live who remember it. You could say the same thing about what we're about to read. Moses is dead. Joshua's dead. And all the people who lived with them are dead, and there's no one who remembers the things that happened when the sea was split open and the plagues were around. All those things are in danger of being lost if they're not told to the next generation. So that's what we see when we come up on Judges chapter 1, verse 1. So for our reading this morning, then we'll pray. Let's read the first two verses, and then we'll read it as we get through the different parts. We'll explain a little, and then we'll read a little. Verse 1, chapter 1, book of Judges in the Old Testament. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we'll need your help. We ask for your help. The author of the words of life to explain these to us. Help us to study an old book. People that have very little in common with us culturally, but then again, maybe they have a lot in common with us. We ask you to be our guide and help us to be obedient to what we learn. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the death of Joshua is how this begins. After the death of Joshua. Good a stake, mile marker in the history books of the Bible. And that forms really an end of an era that would not be repeated. But when we read Judges one, it tells us that Joshua's death was not the end of the story. What happens next, Judges is going to tell us. So Joshua led the people of God after Moses. But in this case, after Joshua's dead... There's really no one in particular chosen to take up the mantle of leadership. You've got a whole group of people, more than a million strong, and no one necessarily in charge. This is very different. So the question is, who will lead now that Joshua is dead? Well, verse 1 tells us that after Joshua died, look at it, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. They asked Yahweh, as it's told in the scriptures, His name they called Him. They ask Him what to do. And I suppose you could read right over that and not think anything very special of it. But I think it speaks volumes of this group of people who wandered around in a wilderness and then knocked down cities the likes of Jericho down flat. Saw all these wondrous things and a generation is dying off and a new one is coming behind them. But they still approach this by asking God in heaven what to do. This speaks volumes as to their understanding of their relationship with God. That they would not only ask God what to do but would expect that they're going to get a, a, a response from him. Um, we're Christians, we got the whole Bible, we're gathered in church this morning, but we come up on a problem on a Monday, and one of the last things we do is ask the Lord for help, and even if we do that, do we really expect He's going to tell us exactly what we're supposed to do? But that's the way this works, and it been that way, been that way with Isaac, with Abraham, with Jacob, he's known as the God of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, he spoke with Moses, this is a God who knows people by the first names, and they know God, and they communicate with one another. They have conversations. The God that these people serve is a God who chose to reveal himself to people and pull them into a relationship with him. At least that's the way it is at the beginning as this book opens, open line of communication on speaking terms with God. This is a big deal. So much of the book of Joshua, the one that we find immediately to our left, that we just closed as we opened Joshua, tells of taking the land during the initial conquest of Canaan. They left Egypt, wandered around in the desert, and were hoping for the promised land. Well, they got there in Joshua, and they began to knock out specific cities, as they were told. But they, they didn't settle that land, they just took that land. When we get to Judges... The the words, the nomenclature changes. They're now possessing the land and settling the land, building houses in the land, setting up uh, cul-de-sacs, high-density housing. Then others, they'll buy a little bit more acreage so they can have some woods around them and hide. But this is where they set down stakes, right? They're going to be living here, growing up here, educating their kids here. They're becoming ingrown into the area. So that's what's going on. And this is what they want to know how to proceed. God answers their question and says, Judah will go up first. You see where it says that? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So not only are they going to go up, Judah first, but victory is a certainty because God has said, I have given it, past tense. It's a done deal. Just go up and get it. It's the way it sounds, right? So the first opening lines of Judges are full of optimism, full of promise. This sounds like a good story. So far, so good. We're watching. We're enjoying. Let's see how this goes. And over the course of time, the picture will take its shape at first glance, especially as we get into what we're going to read here in a moment. It looks like these first chapters are just a big pile of stuff that may or may not necessarily be arranged in any order of importance, right? Uh, sometimes when we pick up a book and begin to read, we're looking for some type of plan. All right, where are we going here? Well, it takes a little bit of a rolling start before we figure out where the author's going with this. Uh, one commentator said, It does look like a pile of stuff, but if you pay attention, it's a carefully organized pile of stuff. So let's try to organize this pile of stuff, and we'll jump back in at verse 3 and read of this successful listing of places these people are settling and inhabiting. Verse 3, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek they found Adonai Bezek Adonai means Lord so this is the man in charge Lord Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites verse 6 was my brother's favorite verse growing up in youth group okay verse 6 Lord Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Some of you are thinking, What's wrong with your brother? (laughs) Well, he's a preacher's kid in a church youth group. You gotta make people laugh from time to time, and when he'd be called upon to give his life verse, that's what he would say. (laughs) People would laugh and look at him, and youth pastors would say, Thank you, Jacob. Um, You can sit down. But listen to this. It goes on. Verse 7, And Lord Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, I used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Now what's unique about this passage is that it's, it's got way more information with this Lord Bezek than most of the war accounts in all of the scripture records, especially in First and 2 Samuel. Uh, the pattern was like this, a brief statement that the battle was joined, whatever it was, a brief mention of the outcome, who won it, a mention of the casualties, especially on the losing side. And then last, an account of the death of persons of importance like generals or kings that died on the loser's side. With this one, we get to hear about him being mutilated and then his philosophical reflection as to how, well, it only makes sense that since I did this to 70 other kings cut off their thumbs and big toes, it's only fitting that God would require that of me. So what does that mean here? Is is this just because... Whoever, and we think it might have been Samuel, that wrote the book of Judges, paid attention in writing class, that when you introduce your work, you've got to have an attention getter. Okay, we've got to grab their attention, so let's talk about, oh yeah, Lord Bezek, when they cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Is that why it's like that? He's getting our attention? He got my attention. And if you've got any little boys, or if you used to be a little boy, don't you remember all the people in life that didn't have one of their fingers? Or an arm. I could give you names of them. And how they would tell you what happened to that finger. Maybe you had enough guts to ask them. What happened to your finger? These things stick in the mind. But I think. And most of the commentators. Agree that the reason why this story. Is positioned in this book at this point. Is to give us a piece of perspective. That's going to help us. With some thorny questions along the way as we go. This is in here. For us to get the intended meaning of this. It's no small thing. That most western eyes. Reading a book like this. In a culture like ours. Is going to say. Who in the world would want to serve a God. Who would order his people. To destroy entire people groups. Just so his people can have a place to stay. I don't know if I want anything to do with a God like that. Well if we take it from. Lord Bezek himself, his confession, his condemnation is out of his own mouth. He did this to 70 other people. In this culture, it's, it's, the culture we're reading about is referred to as retributive justice or an eye for an eye. And again, out of his own mouth, his punishment is attributed to God and seems reasonable. Put another way, the man had it coming. If your little boy's in a sandbox, telling this story you might hear one of them say well maybe he needed it he did need it and don't forget passages like genesis 15 where where god is telling abraham what to expect and there'll be a period of time for about 400 years when your inheritance and your descendants are not in this land they'll be prisoners in egypt but i'll bring them back and then he says this thing about for the the iniquity of the ammonites is not yet full He's working with a group of people. That clock's going to run out and he will judge them for things like child sacrifice and gross sexual sin. These people were under God's judgment and it's his chosen people that he uses as the instrument to judge them. Then you hear things like prophet Jonah who goes to the worst of the worst and gives them the gospel and they get saved. So this is God's business and we're reading as we look carefully and cautiously understanding there's no one passage that's going to answer all these questions on on issues as sensitive as that we'll have to learn this as we go along but I think that's why this gruesome story of a man with no thumbs and no great toes is mentioned that said we'll we'll move on look at the next passage just beginning in 11 we got another little interlude here a little story not about a guy who gets his fingers and toes cut off, but about a groom, a father, and a and a daughter that he gives away. Literally. Not like we do. You'll see. Verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And Caleb, we know who he is, said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Oxah, my daughter, for a wife. Hey, that sounds like a good deal. Put your life in jeopardy to to sack an entire city, if, if you bring back the title deed, you can have Caleb's daughter. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, gave it, and he gave him Oxah. This is Caleb, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, "What do you want?" She said, "Give me a blessing, since you've set me in the land of the Negev Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. All right, why is that portion in here? You got this long, rolling uh, military defeat and settlement of this promised land, and we're sticking little interludes of of stories with people with proper names in there. Uh, Some folks, I suppose, would be getting bored with this if it were a movie. It's just too much violence. Well, we'll throw in a little romance. This man who captures the city, gets the girl, and then talks the girl into getting the water rights that go with the dowry of land, too, because it's a desert and you'll need some water. Well, all of these we'll see later. So this is kind of setting up some character development for later in the passage. So we'll move on to verse 17. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And this is meant to sound like they're on a roll. And the Lord was with Judah. That sounds good. And he took possession of the hill country. But then there's this word, but, which signals the first little glimpse of transition here. I told you, this story goes from good to bad. Well, this is the first glimpse of that. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So verse 18 and 19 are very important because they're the first indication that not everything's going according to plan. What was the plan? Judah goes up first and I'll... I've I've given you the whole thing into your hands. In fact, in Joshua, he actually mentions these people and the chariots and that it wasn't a big deal. So what's the problem here? Had they never seen tanks before? These are iron chariots. And they weren't able to complete the settlement. It was a temporary victory. They couldn't stay. They took the territories but couldn't possess them. I don't think it has anything to do with the tanks because in a few chapters we're going to read about Deborah, who stood in for a man who didn't have the guts to attack a a similar group of people with the same tanks. There's no problem for her. No problem before. Why is it a problem now? Well, this is what you would call tension building, as an author writes to us. This is an unsolved mystery, an uncomfortable mystery. Is it God who didn't mean what he said when he said he'd give it to them? Or have these people not followed instructions? We'll have to keep reading to figure this out. But it looks as if they are not uh, following the trajectory they had hoped. Verse 20. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. That's previous to the story. And he drove out from it three sons of Anak. Those were giants, by the way. But the people of Benjamin, that's another tribe, did not drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So there's another incomplete victory. And the list is growing. You've got Judah, Simeon, now Benjamin, who have not been able to drive out the Canaanites. They may have won a battle here and there, but they can't settle. So one more interlude, okay? We had the man whose fingers and toes were cut off. The man who won his daughter by defeating a city. And now we're going to read about some spies. Look at verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. That's good. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. And notice here, you went from Simeon and Judah to now Joseph. That's Ephraim and Manasseh, by the way. The tribes of Joseph. Verse 24 And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went and went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is the name of this city to this day. I skipped over verse 23. The place where they attacked is named Luz. So He goes off and settles a city in remembrance of the city that was destroyed that he basically uh, betrayed. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, it's giving us indication of how they went about doing what they did. And some would say this sounds a lot like the other story of Jericho and Rahab and the spies and how she helped them and they were able to let her and her family go. Actually, this is more different than it's similar. Because with Rahab, she came to them. She'd already heard about the Lord and wanted safety. Where in this case, they go to the man. They might have even kidnapped him and said, Listen, here's how this is going to work out. You're going to tell us how to get in. And then we're going to let you go, okay? But then it gets different from there. Rahab turned from her pagan background. Lived with the Israelites. With them. This guy... Takes his city and moves it further. He keeps his paganism. He's still a Canaanite. So all they've done is, is made a deal with this guy. And kicked the job of pushing them out just a little further down the road. We'll worry about it later. They're cooperating with this group of people they were told not to have any business to do with. Again, things are not... Progressing as they're supposed to. So listen to the compounding tone of the author as he closes out the chapter. And I've cut out a lot of this. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the verses as we move along. But just listen to the basic components of what's being said. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, verse 28, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so they lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, so the Canaanite lived among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, so the Asherites live among the Canaanites, for they did not drive them out. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants, And I'm skipping all the names of these places that are hard to say. For a good reason. So they lived among the Canaanites. Nevertheless, the inhabitants became subject to forced labor for them. 34. The Amorites. That's Canaanites. Pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. This is backwards. The last one on the list. You've got the Amorites pressing back the Danites. Dan. That's a tribe of, of Israel. They pushed them back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ancient, uh, the ascent of Akrabim to Selah and upward. What difference does that make? They got borders with old city people's names on them. This is all supposed to be new. They're not doing what they were asked to do so not going according to plan and if we were to compare this last bit and the bit in the middle to the previous part what you haven't heard in several verses is anything about killing anything about expulsion anything about taking cities the only thing we've been hearing about is arrangements for peaceful coexistence with the inhabitants of Canaan there's your trajectory Going downhill. Take them. I'll run them out. Possess the land. They're not possessing. They're cohabitating. And the Lord hasn't driven them out. So, if you really like plotting the course and looking at all the little twists and turns, there's a phrase that's been coming up several times. The first time we saw it was when they asked, Who will go up for us? And then God tells them Judah will go up. Those two will go up. And then we read that Joseph goes up. But now when we open verse 1 of chapter 2, we read that the angel of the Lord went up. You know when you're kids and you're messing around and getting into trouble and you know you've got a window to do that in before dad gets home. And sometimes, if you're real good, you can stretch that rope you've got to its furthest extent. But at a certain point, maybe you don't even know it, but mom's already told dad. And he gets home. And you find out everything's changed. That's what's going on here, but to a, a large, grand scale. He said, I brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. It's precisely what they've been doing. You shall break down their altars, not live next to them. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. Change my mind. I'm not going to do it. That they should become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Don't know exactly how this happened. angel of the Lord spoke from the sky through the voice of a prophet. This was audible. Everybody gets the message and the reaction's all the same. They're weeping. This is a bad day. And this is how we begin to see that deconstruction of a good story that ends horrible. Will the tears last? We'll have to read and find out. But if you look at verse 6, there's a very helpful flashback. We see this in stories. We recognize it in movies. He's going to give us a piece of information that happened beforehand that'll help us answer the question, how did it get to this point that the angel of the Lord is having to remind them of what they've done wrong and that he's no longer going to honor his promise to remove these people from the promised land. Well, verse 6, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. This is the end when Joshua just, all right, now go get it. Verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's good. All the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. That's good. The people who'd seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at a hundred and ten. That's pretty good. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Here's your answer to that big question. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he'd done for Israel. If that's the case, then what we just read isn't such a big surprise. They don't know this guy. Uh, He came and told them what they've done wrong. They're crying about it. But to get where they were makes better sense now. Problems clearly discussed in Deuteronomy 6. remember a few weeks ago when uh, my friend Mark was speaking through Deuteronomy 6. Comprehensive educational process of teaching your children when you're lying down, you're rising up, when you're walking, and when you're walking back. That's the reason why they put those things on their head and around their arms if you've gone to Israel. They take that literally. They bind the word to the front of their face and on their hand. But it's interesting that the verses we're about to read in a second. They don't lay the blame at the parents. It's there. It's not that the parents are off the hook. But what it looks like, the following verses are pointing to this not knowing God as a choice... It had more to do with the pull of the Canaanite culture and their own willingness to follow it. And then don't forget about Eli's wicked sons. You remember the ones that God smote? The very same thing. They did not know God, their fathers. They're priests. Of course, they knew about him, but what they knew didn't make any difference in their lives. They were wicked, and God killed them for it. Do you think that Americans would know anything about a culture where in previous generations this country knew a lot and acted on a lot of that knowledge for God and His glory? But generations have come behind them that may have known those things, but those things don't make any difference in their lives. And just turn on the television. The older you are, the more aggravating that newsreel becomes. And sometimes that's that's just healthy to turn that thing off, sometimes. But we know things like this. Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That's what they did. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who'd brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked their Lord to anger. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Get a load of this. Look at verse 15, chapter 2. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And the Lord had warned them. As the Lord had sworn to them. This is an aggravated assault against his loved ones. He told them this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So here's the first thing to write down. We're applying this now. We're quickly coming to a close. What does this mean to us? It's an old story. Good start. Trending bad. It's going to wind up. Uh, unspeakable toward the last few chapters that we probably won't cover much of in this room in a mixed audience. God takes sin seriously. It's the first thing you can write down. It'd probably be good to write it on a wall in your house. We can't get around that. God takes sin so seriously that He would crush His one and only Son in order to pay for it. To provide salvation for us. Sin has its cost. So God takes it very seriously. Then we get to verse 16. And wonder of wonders. We just try to put ourselves in the place of a God. Who after all we've just read. Would have anything to do with these people. Didn't just dump them. Right then and there. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. Who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges and he saved them from the hand of the enemies... Because he was moved to pity. Does that sound confusing to you? That the same God who would knock a group of people on their faces would be the one to stoop down and raise them back up? That the God who would promise death as the punishment for sin in a garden would send his own son to die? The punishment for sin? The same God. No less than a a handful of verses apart from one another, we see judgment and grace in the same passage and wonder why in the world. And it almost seems like through a book like this, the only thing this very dark backdrop is going to accomplish is showing us the light of the world even more brightly. Jesus is all through this dark book in the form of grace. So why do we study the book of Judges? Well, how many of you ever heard a bunch of sermons on Judges? And don't count the ones with Gideon, and don't count the ones with Samson. You probably don't have too many sermon notes in your Bibles for Judges sermons that didn't have to do with Gideon or Samson, right? Much less a whole extended series over the course of a summer. We're doing this, we're studying it because God is at work in the book of Judges. And the book is going to be tough to study, but it's going to give us a perspective of God's grace that maybe we haven't seen before. Maybe we haven't been through the the mess that we'll see in this book and we'll see how grace is even more precious. There are no heroes in this book, no role models. And sermons that try to make role models out of these judges, I think, are stretching far. These guys are flawed. They're broken. They're messed up. The only thing that this is helpful for is to convince you that God uses messed up people just like you are just like i am and i'll tell you later what this book means to me of what i learned about it when i was a confused kid in bible school down in florida but it's almost as if it gets so bad people are just saying will you finally show me a judge that's just Will you finally show me a king that's kingly Finally, show me a savior that can actually save me because all I'm seeing in these people who wear robes and say they have words from God is just a bunch of broken people just like me. They're no better than me. I need something better than this. There's no difference between these people called Hebrews than the Canaanites they're living in their backyard of. There's no distinctive line by the end of Judges between God's people and the Canaanites. And it might be that in America, it's a very thin line between the people who call themselves Christians and the people who wouldn't dare. That might be some of the stuff that we'll be able to pull out of this. So we're going to study judges because our situation here and now isn't that different in some situations from there, then, and there. In other words, their isness lines up with our, their wasness lines up with our isness. Okay? We're on the same sheet some places. It's a book about God delivering His people from a mess that they made themselves. We can identify with that. And probably of most use to us would be this. People we read about in Judges supposed to be living in a land full of God's chosen people. They're supposed to push out the Canaanites. They were unable to do that because of their backsliding, because of their rebellion against God. And what results is a pluralistic society. God's people and not God's people living in the same area. And they would continually need leaders to come in and remind them of who they are, right? That's not so different than where we are now. America is a pluralistic society. They don't serve Molech or Ashtoreth or Baal. They just serve individualism or consumerism or just their plain old self. And this stuff is put in front of us all the time. And to be normal, we need to look like them, act like them, think like them, talk like them. It's not true, but it's, it's in front of us all the time. So our same tendencies to do what they kept finding themselves doing, just assimilating more and more, increment by increment, to look more like the people that they're spending time with. And that's the same thing that we struggle with every day of our lives. As parents, we try to make sure our children don't need the approval of someone else so bad that they'll trade those morals for acceptance. These are things that we'll learn and they'll be very helpful for us. So the questions we'll be asking ourselves as we look at the people in the period of the judges being asked the same thing. Who are we? And whom do we serve? That was actually Joshua's last speech. Choose you this day, whom you will serve. This group of people ain't doing too good with that. And some churches in America aren't either. Some homes, some individuals. And we'll let the Lord speak and His word speak, and we'll ask him to help us understand and obey as we move through this. Next week, we get into specific judges what they did and I think you'll enjoy that next week we'll probably cover the left-handed judge who wore his knife on his right side there's a reason he did that surprise attack but that's for later With, with what we've got on our plate today we need to pray and ask the Lord's help with what to do with it Father in heaven we thank you for an old book full of bizarre Stories of real people in a real time with real problems involving real sin. And we ask for your help to save us as you save them from the effects of their own mistakes. Lord, teach us about grace and forgiveness to remember who we are and how we can be in a position to to tell someone else the truth that can change their life. We look for you in the book of Judges, so reveal yourself to us, perhaps in a way we've, we've never seen. Be our teacher. We'll be your students. We ask this in your name. Amen.